Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Oh my God, I just interviewed Gabriel Jimenez. He was the founder of the Petro. Yes, that Petro, the cryptocurrency that was founded by the president. That's actually pretty debatable if he's the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro. And the Petro ended up raising like hundreds of millions of dollars around the world. And this crazy story of this kid who actually was the technological founder of the Petro cryptocurrency. We talked about like how he ended up getting called to the central bank in the morning by the president to found this thing why he went back to Venezuela, why he cannot go back to Venezuela, but he actually can't even go to Florida where they have the Venezuelan expat community. They all hate him too. Crazy stories. Talk to you guys just in a minute. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor Bitpanda for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on on this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories, can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcast in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem and you're listening to Untold Stories. I'm here today actually broadcasting out of an undisclosed location. I've moved my studio. Uh, I'm recording out of a bedroom, but I still have all my microphones and everything set up. But I'm here today with Gabriel Jimenez and uh, who has a crazy story. And when I say crazy, like, I don't even know how to begin. Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, no, thanks for inviting me. And similar like you, I mean, in an undisclosed uh, location too, because if I, I, I disclose it, you know, you probably... I'm, I'm I was half joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, um, you know, I, it's different here. Um, it's you know when you're st- when you're stuck home so much for so long like I did I did with house arrest a year and a half ago uh, a bunch of years ago for a year and a half and I I couldn't do it again so I just um, moving around and you know a lot of people are kind of doing that now a lot of people are like I'm I'm seeing swapping homes you see Airbnb a lot of staycations uh, that's going on it's kind of crazy but um, yeah it's good to talk to you and it's nice that we're able to to get you know get together here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate it, and you know, always I like I told you by by email. I actually started looking at crypto uh, as a business and as an industry with your uh, with your story, with the opportunities that yeah. that Bitcoin was was creating and how Bitcoin was being used. Is is where I started to look at them and look at them as a, a solution for many of the problems that we had in Venezuela. So yeah, it's actually kind of crazy because I read the I read the article um, that came out in New York Times, and I was I was very familiar with the story um, that you know with everything. But what what had caught my eye, and this was interesting. So let me tell you, as I'm reading the article, and and I know Nathaniel Popper for a very long time, 
for a very, very, very long. He actually wrote a book about me. He wrote many articles about me, covered my multiple lawsuits, litigations, and my whole life. Nathaniel has covered like my life. I've known him for, for almost 10 years, um, for better, for worse. And so um, when I was reading the article, I, I had that in mind going into it. But what's kind of cool is I remember sitting with my wife and we we're having coffee and I'm reading the article on uh, on my phone and about, you know, about about the whole, um, you know, Nick, you know, Nicolas Maduro and the whole petrodollar and everything. And the um, and what was funny was that there was a scene where uh, he had uh, the president of Venezuela had told you that uh, you he had seen the he had seen the documentary banking on Bitcoin, uh-huh. and that was the documentary that I was in. So I'm <laughs> saying to my wife, I'm like, "Oh shit, the president of Venezuela." Uh, well, like I don't really think he's a president, but that's for another conversation. Yeah. You know, he he uh, he knows who I am. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was actually he declared himself that he was a fan of that documentary and that he he got inspired by it. So 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 yeah. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, a crazy story. Panels over there, um, and he, they talk about the documentary for about a couple minutes or, or so. And he he actually watched it. It wasn't you know BS from him. From him, you know. So I want to I want to tell you something interesting that you, uh, a different perspective that you may not have gotten before. So you know, I've been involved in crypto for a very long time and Bitcoin and everything. So understand from my perspective. So imagine yourself. You're in Venezuela and you're you're you know going through the whole story that you're going to tell in a minute. But from my end, I'm deep in the in the Bitcoin scene at the time. So during these years, you know, we weren't, I think it was like 2017, 2018, yep. um, when things were starting to get like when when um, it was starting to get when the Petro was starting to get um, huge attention. And I was looking at it from the crypto side. I'm saying to myself, who like there there's an office somewhere in Venezuela where there's a bunch of developers and coders that are like working on this. And so I'm, I'm very curious to know like, who are those people and like, what is going on right now? So it's kind of cool. Like years later talking to the person who, uh, you know, was the brainchild, but the biggest thing that I didn't realize that you were coming into this whole thing with the best of intentions to really try to turn things around. And, and so, you know, learning that is that story, how you got kind of like sucked into this whole thing. Uh, I can imagine you like your age and you and I are the same age. I can imagine that, but I've been told that I talk too much on my own show. So I want to let you take it away. Can you start us and tell us the story? But when you tell us the story, a lot of us read books about Venezuela and everything like that. What's this scene like when you land there right now, when you're, when you fly there and you land, describe us like the airport scene. Cause we all know airport scenes. Like what's different about landing in Caracas in a Venezuelan airport. And then, and how did your whole story come to be? Who are you? Yeah. Tell us everything. Yeah. And, and related to, to the obvious, just, just to point this, this, uh, thing, uh, I, my rent, uh, was $40 per month. And we were uh, a group of young Venezuelans, of more than 20 young Venezuelans all, all together, uh, that we started to, to dream and we actually believed that we could, uh, you know, pull off a project that could create that transparency and accountability uh, to, to the government that many people, you know, just don't realize. And they, many people started to make Pre- uh, prejudice to to the project because it was just 
spoken by Maduro that when he literally spoke about it, he just uh, the only thing that he has read was a pitch deck of nine pages, and he just started talking as a politician more than 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 he knows. But uh, going going back to your question, going back to what it was landing in Venezuela, I actually landed back in Venezuela at the end of 2015 after the opposition won the elections uh, for the first time in 18 years. Um, Chavez got into power in 1998. That's, uh, I was only eight years old. And you know the country has been in demise since then. Even having the biggest oil reserve in in the world and and you know the fifth reserve of gold in in, in the world, the economy in Venezuela is very well known. The situation, uh, the uh, hyperinflation that there is, people earning about seven dollars uh, per uh, per month. Uh, the whole wave of migrations, the scarcity of food and medicine back at the time. But when it started was when you land, and as soon as you land, you realize uh, that every uh, um, corner of the of, of of the airport is covered with a Chavez uh, face, and and it's covered with uh, socialist propaganda. But Things are not properly working. Uh, the air conditioning at the at the airport is, is is not working. The lights in some area of the and the electricity in some area of the, the airport are, are not working. And as soon as you get out of the security area, you need to be aware that nobody takes your your luggage and run as soon as possible to the car. That you have to be a familiar or, or a friend waiting for you to to go out uh, and go back to to Caracas. That is forty five minutes away. So I landed in, in the middle of this crisis uh, with the hope that the car- who controls the airport. Typically, like airports are like. You control the airport, you control the city. So who yeah. controls the airport? Like is it is it military police? Is it local police? What's the what's the control of power? I understand like there are different different like different uh, security forces and different groups that are always jockeying for power. Yeah, well, it's controlled by the government, it's controlled by the military. Uh, we have a huge Corruption scheme that is uh, corruption in every level of the uh, of the state, but the airports are particularly controlled by the military. Of, of course, there are many accusations uh, of, of drug, uh, you know, being carried in, in, in planes and so on that the military uh, control, but. Uh, everything like the biggest power uh, over there because what is holding Maduro is literally the use of power and the guns and that power comes from the military. So every uh, in every aspect of the the economy and of the business or the airports or on the oil industry or coal industry, there are always military people that is in charge of that. Just in Venezuela, just to give you this example, there are over. 4,000 generals. That is that is more generals than the U.S. has. And we are talking, you know, a small country as Venezuela that is not, you know... Oh, I never realized that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason is because it's basically a corporation, you know, a corporation of, of corruption. And that's the reason that they still support Maduro because Ma, uh, Maduro is, 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 you know, has created this corruption company to... to 
help him to to gather support around him because that's what helps him in, in power. So so basically, for lack for you know not to simplify it, Venezuela is basically run now like a like a corrupt company. The army is the corporation, very similar to like the Iran Revolutionary Guards. They're a corporation. The the military runs every aspect of social and business life. They they their boss is the president, and that's it. Like it's it's a, not a complicated situation when you simplify it like that. Is that is that accurate? It, that's perfectly accurate. And just to give you an example, how how you know this corrupt corporation uh, runs the country after. The opposition won the the elections. Two weeks after that, the Maduro regime uh, uh, eliminated the former Supreme Court and elected a new Supreme Court, completely elected by them, by the former uh, National Assembly. And and it was an illegal process. So they were an illegal Supreme Court. And this Supreme Court... Uh, basically eliminated the new uh, National Assembly, telling that it was illegal because there were two deputies that they say that they weren't deputies and, and it invalidated any action of the National Assembly. So just in a, in a matter of four months, um, they eliminated all the power of our Congress and to create laws, you know, to... Um, to uh, Why? Regulate. Why keep up? I'm sorry for interrupting you, but why why bother keep up like the the you know making it look like democracy? Why even bother anymore? I I don't think that they even bother nowadays in in caring to look as a democracy. I mean, they don't they don't care they don't care about you know being called that they are dictators or a, a regime. Uh, they just care about remaining in power, and they use any means that that they can, and that that is basically basically it. And you know, after 2016, in the middle of this huge economic uh, crisis in 2017, for that reason, you know, people were desperate. Just in 2016, over a million and a half Venezuelans—that uh, is almost like five percent of the population—left um, the country. Uh, in that in that moment of uh, that moment of time, and in 2017, people were, uh, you know, angry, and people started going back again to the streets and protesting. And in a matter of, of six months or, or or so, the government um, started to to you know they did I lose you? Put in prison over 2,000 people uh, and killed over 140 Venezuelans. Um, on protests and the repression was obliterating any hope of, of the the opposition and and it, it ended by July or by August uh, of, of that year 2017 that the opposition lost every hope every person like all the protests stopped they created a new uh, entity named Asamblea Constituyente that is like the constitutional congress that is above any power that is completely uh, illegal and then they they um, they call for elections for governors and after losing by a landslide the national assembly they win 20 out of 24 uh, governors uh, that year so you can imagine how the whole 
um, hope of, of the people, how the whole sentiment uh, of the people in the country was uh, at that time. People believe that like very much like many people right right now that they were going to stay in power uh forever and that there forever. was no, no no hope out you know and they give up hope at this point so you know like talking about hope out of these like really crappy situations usually like you see the best technological advancements you see the best uh smartest people uh and a lot of really smart people like yourself left but then came back you know when 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 there's a point you hear all the stories of um, a lot of expatriates who had left, people that I know here in, in Florida, my community where I live, who who went back and tried and then he had to come back again because Maduro just simply didn't want, you know, young, smart people coming back to the country uh, to, to, to get involved. They were chased back out. But you weren't. Um, and in fact, one of... Uh, what could have been uh, and what, what, what will be seen in the history books is the first time that a state government actually decided to use a, a cryptocurrency and issue a, uh, you know, a crypto, like a state-backed crypto or a, an oil back or an asset-backed cryptocurrency. Venezuela, you know, on the presidential level was the first one um, to do it. And, and so you'll be definitely like in those history books. But, uh, you know, that's, it's so very interesting how that all played out because the difference here, Gabriel, is that like in the United States, the dollar is already digital. You know, we use it on our phones, Apple Pay and everything. The rest of the world, the dollar, you know, the, our currencies are already digital at this point. So saying that we're going to do a digital, you know, government-backed digital currency is a fallacy. It's stupid to say. But what, but what, what you were doing was an actual cryptocurrency on an actual blockchain. And you believed and you were pushing for people to, you know, to, to really bring people out, out of poverty. Can you tell us like... The first time that you had uh, heard about this idea, and then you decided to, to you know, say, "I want to jump into this." The, well, it, it was a process, and let me let me try to give you a bit of, uh, of context. When I went back, I had a digital agency, and I pivoted into a tech incubator. Uh, I pivoted into a tech incubator because I believe that uh, true entrepreneurship and, and technology. Uh, there is a, a, the power of change, and not only you know through the politicians it can bring change, but entrepreneurship and, and, and technology. Uh, it's something that I learned in the U.S. are big drivers of change, and that's how, how I wanted to in, to support or, and to give support in in my country for that to happen. So in 2016, I started uh, to develop a POS system that uh, used crypto and was connected to the banking system in, in, in Venezuela um, as a company because, you know, I wasn't a developer, uh, you know, behind a, a computer my, uh, myself. I had a company, uh, my, my employees. Had, I mean, I, when I went back, we were only three people in the kitchen of my, of my partner's friends. And in a matter of a, of a year, we grew up to more than, than 15 um, people just by that uh, uh, by the different projects that that we were doing and i, I started to work on uh, on crypto right there in venezuela as a company because i figured out that you know there was a scarcity of um uh, of bolivars of and um, of cash bolivars because of hyperinflation there is uh, also the problem of capital controls and the problem with capital control that everybody knew that they were bad um, for the country was creating this black market economy for the u.s dollar and because um, the government kept 
printing bolivars it was pushing the price of uh, of the black market dollar uh, uh, to the to the skies at the same time the government had uh, price controls and those price controls um, that the government had created uh, a scarcity of food and medicine because the price controls were uh, actually based on the official dollar and i realized that uh, you know and, and that many of those uh, problems if we will have an actual access to a currency that could be uh, freely trade uh, they could be and will be recognized as freely trade those problems will be um, uh, solved when this is when this is happening that is in in, in 2016 i started to study as an entrepreneur you, you have to look when you're a company what is possible to do according to your legal system and in a dictatorship the legal system is pretty much what uh what the dictator says uh what the dictator and what the regime thinks is is uh, you know good or or bad that is what what the law is but you have to fulfill with the legal system in a country when you're a company because if not you're going to be shut down and you know the tools that you're developing they are not uh, going to be allowed and i realized that the government didn't have an actual position on cryptocurrencies but the whole industry was underground because people were being thrown to jail uh, and all the media was talking that uh, that the government was against cryptocurrencies because people were being locked down especially particularly minors but when i find out about about this uh, uh, the stories about those people is that they are being asked for five thousand dollars ten thousand dollars to be uh, to allow them to be free again so basically this I, I i realized that this wasn't the kind of money that you know a minister or vice president would be after uh, for so basically this was just extortion from corrupt uh, corrupt officials and the excuses were very like the excuses would be because you're consuming too much electricity or uh, or because you imported a machine without a license it didn't matter and it wasn't illegal but they were using the lack of clarity to throw people in jail so when this situation happened in 2017 in the middle of the um, the ico craze that you know what's happening in 2017 but on venezuela we were protesting uh, and we were fighting against the regime i had three other blockchain projects working on uh, on my company when there was no hope uh, anymore i um, um I, I realized that if I stayed underground, I would be a target for for the regime. And my my strategy as a company back at the time was instead of hiding, let me go, let me just try to go public and talk about cryptocurrencies. Let me gather around other companies that will uh, be able to stand up and talk about uh, talk about cryptocurrencies because they could be in good for uh, for the country to talk uh, uh, to actually educate the society and most importantly educate also the regulators like the regulators uh, actually see cryptocurrency as um, as as something that could be positive for the economic problems of of the um, of the country because at the time it hasn't been politicized that um, that topic so because of that 
level of attention that I was getting in the country, uh, I'm actually, uh, I mean, that strategy works. And I'm actually called to go to the central bank in October 2017. And when... But I'm, wait, before that happened, uh, the question... So we're going to start again when you got called to the central bank. But the question I have for you regarding that is, didn't you think... Like, how did you think that would play out? Uh, thinking that the government would eventually call you up because um, you're going to start talking you know, publicly about cryptocurrency. Um, like, what... In your head, like what would what was the best outcome of that? What would be the best that you, you know? You must have thought of a consequence, you know, negative or positive. Eventually, you you didn't you you must have not thought that a a cryptocurrency could be created on like a state level. But what what would be like would like acceptance be something that would be uh, you'd be happy with? What what were you looking for? Yeah, well, I, I was certain that cryptocurrencies weren't illegal due to your legal system. I'm, I my background is actually a lawyer. Uh, so I knew that I had that on my side. So what I wanted, my expectation was, was in my mind, was to make the government say something good about crypto. Like the government started okay. uh, like accepted cryptocurrencies as a reality, probably as a private asset or, or, or a digital asset. And, and there would be some declaration regarding the use of cryptocurrencies because if they allowed and they recognized cryptocurrencies we will eliminate the capital controls and we will en uh, eliminate the um, the price controls that caused the the big uh, scarcity that that was at the country so that was my best outcome what everyone like at the time believe is that i was going to be detained people if you see you know when we were doing conference and so on people were saying hey these guys are crazy this people is going to prison soon the civilian is going to go for you and my my strategy was because what i'm talking here is like anyone can actually access to the international market without the use of the u.s dollar but just by um, true um, cryptocurrencies, people can save without the use of, um, of the U.S. dollar. But true um, cryptocurrencies, people can pay uh, without the use of, of the Bolivar's cash that people didn't have. I mean, those were things that everybody could feel that they were good for the whole society. So, so that that was my um, my flag at the time. Also, there, there was an important one. Um, people could be financed, and entrepreneurs, especially young Venezuelans, could be financed uh, and and have the same opportunity as someone in New York or San Francisco or in London to be to to find finance for their projects and being able to develop them in, in Venezuela. That, and, and for that was like a big opportunity for for us as a society on the context that that we were living and in a hopeless um, situation as as we were. Uh, uh, the realization was even if the government doesn't change, if this becomes, uh, if cryptocurrencies become, the crypto economy are recognized, we can have an opportunity to build ourselves these solutions and to bring financial freedom and economic independence uh, through that without asking for anyone else's um, permission. Because uh, you need, and in, in the economy, you need, in, a, in an economy, especially in a, in a country like uh, like Venezuela, you need to be recognized. 
by the government because the government, like I told you, controls every aspect of, of the economy. And if they are not, uh, if they don't agree about on a specific topic, they will go against the businesses, they will go against the financial institutions, they will go about the people that is trying to, to import. And if they will accept it, you know, those corporations, those financial institutions, uh, the, the, the regular people would be able to use it without fear of persecution, and that will give chances to, to, the, con- to the industry to, to flourish. So my, my worst outcome was being detained, uh, and my best outcome was getting an actual declaration uh, or, or resolution from the it's government. It's pretty, like, wild. It's like a pretty, like, like crazy... Uh, difference there, like either be detained or like something. You know, the government says something good about Bitcoin. No, nothing, nothing good in between. Nothing in between. Did you think would happen? No, no. Actually, <laughs> that that was literally the um, the strategy card that we played. Um, yeah. and because we felt very confident that cryptocurrencies were in legal, and at the same time, that the main benefits that will bring cryptocurrencies to uh, uh, to the population were good for for everyone uh, uh, on that uh, on that end. So it's it's something like supporting you know somebody in the street giving giving him food that people could say yeah i mean that's good that that person is starving the benefits that cryptocurrencies brought to could bring to the society were evident for for everyone and that's the bet that that i that i was uh, having on and i want to talk about bitpanda for a second i mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now they love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works. Because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Okay, so let's t- let's go back to the central bank. So you got the call and now you have in your head, you're like, all right, this can go like either really good or really bad. Uh, yeah. You woke up that morning. Take it away. Uh, well, actually, it was a big discussion uh, inside of the company to see if we were going or no. We actually thought that they were waiting for us to detain us. This is a common technique from the Sabine. Uh, but when we go and we actually talk about the different benefits uh, of, of crypto, whether there were many technicians and directors, you know, people that have over 20 years or 30 years inside the central bank, they were very clear 
and they knew that the problems that the economy had were because they were printing money. Because they, yeah, I mean, when we were explain, explaining Bitcoin about the the limits of of Bitcoins, and uh, they were like, yeah, I mean, what what is happening uh, right now with um, Bolivar that wouldn't be happening with Bitcoin. I mean, they were like just talking like like that, and I realized that they knew very well that the problems that they had. There is an important point that I I see in that meeting uh, because that I see in the meeting, that is a video of Chavez actually talking about a currency named El Petro that was brought by another member that went to uh, to this uh, this conference. And he was talking about creating an ICO for PDVSA uh, uh, that, that could make this, this currency. And people there really liked the idea. Uh, and I figure that this was the actual way to persuade the government to make crypto legal. And literally the following weeks, when we get invitations, uh, and I, some government official uh, approached me and, and told me, hey, I mean, we heard about the projects that you've been doing uh, for, for the crypto economy. And I was wondering if, if um, you had an idea of how make this possible for, for, the, um, for the whole economy. And what I told him is that the idea that, um, because he had actually a, a similar idea to make a crypto backed by oil. And I told him that the, the best way to pitch the government related to cryptocurrencies, it was through an idea of Chavez that Chavez was basically like their Jesus or like uh, their mouth. Anything that Chavez says will be um, will be accepted by them, especially because the capital controls were imposed by by Chavez. Uh, and and when I tell him that, and he tells me, well, I mean, but what what could we? do about about this what could uh, uh, we make to uh, to make this and this happen uh, and i told him well the petrol will be literally the spearhead because in order to make the petrol possible we will need to legalize the whole crypto economy because if the petrol is a crypto uh, a cryptocurrency you have to legalize cryptocurrencies to make the petrol a reality and if we actually bring the petrol and make the state to actually take the petrol, we will be able to see through a, through a blockchain explorer the actual government spending and the accountability of the, of the government. We will see how the institutions are moving mo- money. And that is something that right now you don't have it's like having a, an explorer right. on right. the federal reserve or, 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 or sure. on, on economy so that that is basically what um, i persuaded carlos vargas to actually to, uh, sell the government the idea of making the reality uh, and the idea of Chavez a reality, and this will bring all of the benefits that I was speaking uh, relating to cryptocurrency for payments or savings and so uh, and as a as a way to get to the international market with an idea of um, of Chavez. And you know that's literally what I was speaking at the time was 
basically science fiction. Uh, was very similar to Star Wars because you know nothing like that has ever been been done. Like introducing a token or or, or a crypto to to you know a whole whole economy. And to be honest, when I started talking with with uh, with Vargas, I didn't had any expectations that they will approve this because it's it's like very much when you're with you know somebody speaking about oh yeah I mean let's let's make uh, um, the U.S. dollar uh, uh, um, a cryptocurrency and, and so it could be traceable to a blockchain for you know when you have those ideas that you start speaking about that was very similar to the vibe that I had when I was speaking with Vargas because I felt that this was too far off that was too impossible to the government to actually approve it. Uh, yes, it was a strong pitch to the government because it was an idea of Chavez to solve all the problems of the economy. That that was basically um, the pitching point for them. But at the same time, it was like shooting that last. They were shooting themselves on the foot, like destroying uh, the socialist model that they were proclaim- proclaiming and the the model that they control every aspect of the economy. If out of the sudden they you know recognizes all the crypto economy, all the um, the uh, 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 all the cryptocurrencies that are uncensorable and and are they fundamentals of capitalism is like the antagonist of what the Venezuelan government was. So this was like very hard to actually uh, make it reality. And my best hope, like I told you from uh, from before, was like at least to get a resolution um, from, the, from the government uh, recognizing cryptocurrencies because they were good. That, that was what I was expecting to happen. And uh, but what happened next is is something that uh, changed uh, the the uh, changed everything because even through we had uh, that uh, idea that we uh, drafted in a very simple pitch deck that wasn't like the, with the principles of what we were uh, wanting to do um, that uh, one of them was a uh, the legalization but. There was a tech conference in Caracas uh, on December 3rd. And in that tech conference, Maduro went to that tech, uh, tech, uh, tech conference. Oh, he did? And, yes, he, he went to that tech conference. I was in, I was in Bogota, but he was in, in, in Venezuela. And in that tech conference in, in Venezuela, that it, I mean, it's unusual that the president goes to a TED conference, but he was over, the, uh, over there. He went over there by surprise. And in that TED conference, uh, there was a guy selling that, that he sold through Mercado Libre, that is a, like the Latin America eBay. He was selling a Bitcoin mining machine. And he was, you know, with his stand over there selling this Bitcoin mining machine. And... Uh, the president actually walks by the stand where he was, and because you know the the machine looked funny for the president, it was like the first time he saw something like that. He um, he asked him, "Hey, what is that?" And this guy uh, tells the uh, tells the president that it, that is to mine Bitcoin. That you don't need the U.S. dollar for that. That is the currency of of, of the future. That is on the blockchain. And yeah. he 
um, the president turns back and he was next to the vice president that he was the, um, the person with Carlos Vargas that, that Carlos Vargas uh, showed the project and then he showed the project to, to Maduro, the Petro project that, that we uh, created for him. So the president has already heard about the Petro and has read the, uh, uh, the project idea. And when he turns back and asks the vice president, hey, isn't that the idea of Chavez? Uh, uh, man, uh, the vice president, Tarek, told him, yes, that's the idea. So the president says, well, let's approve it. Let's yeah, approve uh, it. Yeah, of course. It's Ch- Chavez, clearly, it's, it's his idea exactly. uh, to do this. <laughs> exactly. So because of it. But I, I mean, up until I, this point, you were designing the Petro to be an actual cryptocurrency. Now no. that the president was going to take over, was there was was there a fear that that you know that you would centralize it and it wouldn't be a decentralized cryptocurrency anymore? Well, up up until the point, the petrojet was decentralized, um, but we weren't actually currently ongoing working on the petro. We just drafted, you know, when you are like creating an initial pitch deck about a project, you know, we were drafting and, and creating the, and the idea because we had other co- uh, projects as a, as a company. There, there wasn't much development at the time with, um, with the Petri itself. It's when that happens, when that, uh, when that happens that I'm an actual friend that I had, that I told him, hey, you know, this crazy idea that I, um, we came out with to pitch the government about creating the um, the state uh, cryptocurrencies to legalize all, all crypto and, and it was about you know we could uh, eliminate capital control we could create a free market economy in Venezuela with that um, and this friend sends me the video when Maduro is is saying that uh, and like 30 minutes after Maduro tells uh, uh, the, the, um, that he is approving the petro that I'm watching on the video and like I'm sweating because. That guy, I mean, he was literally saying, you know, crazy things that weren't were completely off the project. But at the same time, I was receiving um, a call that uh, from from Carlos Vargas to tell me that I needed to go back to Caracas because they didn't know what to do next. Uh, that they had no idea of what to do, uh, what to do next. That um, I had to go and explain them what were the next steps because the president, out of the sudden, just approved it. Uh, so I realized the level of ignorance that they they had on this uh, on this topic, as you can imagine. Even even yeah. today, if you uh, if you ask any U.S. politician um, what crypto is, they would probably tell you a wrong answer. <laughs> you know, so that that's definitely changed. But you're right. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely but, changed, but it's you're right. But um, back in 2017, especially you know, or government that is you know a government that has mismanaged the economy in, in such a state to make it the worst economy in the world, even with all the assets that we has and resources that we has as, as a country, they literally knew anything. And the next day, when I mean, the, after, a couple of days after, when I landed in, in Caracas, the first call that I get is, is with the uh, vice president, the minister of science, and, and Carlos Vargas. They were asking me if they would plug a computer to the electricity and get, uh, you know, dollars in their bank account. They didn't know, you know, what a blockchain was. Uh, 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 they didn't know even... Even Ethereum, they only have heard about uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, at, at the time. So they didn't know uh, 
any anything about cryptocurrencies and they started to ask me okay how the picture is going to be um, so are we going to be able to mine it or no so uh, how many pictures are there going to be they start to ask me all of this question and it's when i realized that this was an actual opportunity to uh, incorporate in the whole economy at decentralized and take away the power of uh, and the control of the economy uh, from the, the uh, from the government and to actually create a, a, a system through thanks to through the blockchain that was accountable because it was transparent and every, anyone could actually could actually so- see it. So how did it all fall apart? I mean, now we're talking from California. It's years later. The petrodollar, the petro, like, you know, it actually launched and a lot of money was raised. You know, um, how did it all fall apart and how did you end up, you know, being hated by uh, not hated by, but basically like you were telling me earlier, you have uh, the Venezuelan you know community here in the U.S. and you have. You know, the community in Venezuela, like both sides don't like your side of the story. Yeah, uh, both no, sides don't don't like what happened. Because I realized the level of ignorance that that and that it was and what we were trying to do was actually achievable. I actually tried to put the, the ICO of the Petro uh, in February. And the reason for that is that I wanted to pull it up before they actually realized what is going on. Uh, before they actually realize the project that they just approved is a shirt on, on their system of controls. Um, at the same time, everyone was uh, uh, was thinking that, you know, I was just collaborating with the government, that I was helping the government, that this was, uh, you know, a whole plan for the government to do money launder or to do corruption, that basically, you know, they could do that without legalizing in, uh, or, or, or they could do it with uh, any other crypto without actually telling to the whole world what they were doing. But people from the opposition started to... to uh, accused me from helping the government and trying to be a billionaire and so on when actually the project was a non-for-profit project uh, uh, itself. And and then the government, by January, they, uh, the Ministry of Finance, uh, Simon Serpa, that is actually indicted by, uh, by the U.S., realizes that uh, he will control he will lose control of the mafias of the economy, of the currency exchange, of the black market. He will lose control uh, of the actual um, monetary policy uh, after, you know, being three weeks before with the president committing to me uh, at his house in, in La Roca that the whole vision of the project was being developed. They just wanted to stop the project to happen. They bring, you know, some models from Russia and, and from LA and from Mexico, and they put uh, some Russians to, to speak, but they were all scammers. And we actually accused them with the government, and actually the media knew that, that they were scammers, but they, they couldn't actually um, uh, publicly speak about it because that was inciting information that we had because we discovered what, 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 what was going on, and I wasn't able to defend myself because in that process, they um, threatened me to kill me, uh, the Minister of Science, uh, the Minister of uh, Finance threatened me to disappear me, uh, they sent me the Sabine, that is the political police, to my, uh, to my house, they detained me with the military police, um, uh, pointing you know, AK-47s uh, to my forehead, uh, and then they kept threatening me uh, as, as you know, they 
telling me that I was only free because I I created the uh, I created the Petro, but that I was a traitor to the fatherland, fatherland and for them a CIA agent. They actually prosecuted me uh, on the Constitutional National Assembly, and because I couldn't, uh, and the threat with them was that I couldn't say anything against the government or against the pro- project, because if not, they will you know they wouldn't be responsible for whatever happens to me. And that means that, you know, prison is the safest option uh, when they, uh, they, they were telling me, uh, telling me that. So I cannot actually be able to speak about what, what is happening. At the same time, I tried to remain in, in, in the company trying to, to pivot. Um, but because they hated, uh, hatred was from, from both sides, the petrol became at the same time, a tool for propaganda and manipulation and control of, of the population. I couldn't actually tell what what was going on. So uh, the government raided my my offices. They went after my clients and they went after my investors. They went after my partners. Um, I, I pressured them to cut ties with, with me. I ended up losing everything and every authority and destroying everything that that I ever had. Uh, and I and at the same time, from the position from the position view, I was like, you know, still somebody helping the government when the government was literally crushing me because of what I, I was trying to do. But it's a crazy story. Uh, it's a crazy, crazy story. And, and Nathaniel did a really good job and anyone can, can go into the New York times article and, and read the details. Um, it will be made, it has to be made into like a movie. It's going to be crazy. Um, and we'll talk about who's going to play you and uh, as well. I know the author who we should have Ben Mesrick write the book, by the way, he would be the best author to write this story. I'll introduce you to him after, but, um, what are you working on now? Like, you know, I don't want to, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're 75% done with the show and I always like to focus on the future. You know, your story has been very, very greatly covered, uh, by a lot of other people who are a lot smarter than me, but, uh, I want to talk about like how you, you know, you, you're in a very, I, I'm going to say that you're in a fucked up situation. Uh, mm-hmm. you're in a situation that if I was in, I'd probably still be a hermit crab under a rock somewhere for many, many more years, but you're back. You're, you're, you're working on some stuff. You're out. You're talking on podcasts. It takes a lot of guts, a lot of balls to do that. Uh, Venezuelan balls, as they say, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. what are you working on now? Yeah. Well, uh, just keep trying to work on what I'm passionate about. And that means, uh, trying to find solutions for my home. Uh, I'm working towards uh, fixing or helping uh, out the problems that we have in Venezuela. Now I'm doing it from outside. Uh, I just want to go back to my country. Uh, you know, any expat probably isn't on the same situation as, as me. Uh, and I had the opportunity to be here now on, on the Bay Area. And I've been... I, I fought for financial freedom, but now I'm building a project that is based on economics independence. Uh, the, I like this quote from Ronald Reagan that he he says that the best social program is a job. So I'm basically building a, a platform that is uh, purely fo- focused on, on Venezuelans uh, in the country and that have left the country but doesn't have a job to help them find find a job and 
being able to be paid through, through of course, cryptocurrencies. And at the same time, I'm supporting uh, projects and crypto projects uh, that are actually focusing on Venezuela, that are focusing on helping Venezuelans to escape, you know, from all, all of these topics and, uh, and all of these problems that we talk about on the economy. I'm helping them. Uh, I'm helping one here in, in the Bay Area named Reserve. I'm supporting that uh, that project. But uh, my my focus of, of time is with uh, JoJo. That is a, a platform, a freelance platforms, especially for for Venezuelans to to bring economic independence over there. What's the what's the way? You sit- um, economic independence is such a big deal, and that's like something that you're working on. I see a lot of people are working on, like empowering, um, you know, uh, young people in Venezuela and older people. Um, I'm I'm told that like the black market in Venezuela is just like very robust in terms of how uh, efficient it, it has gotten because of the the lack of a normal like economy. So my question is, what's what's the future for Venezuela? Like in ten years. Are we still going to see, is it going to still be like a successor of Maduro the way Chavez, you know, Maduro was a successor of Chavez? Are we going to still see that 10 years from now? Talking about a failed state, will we see some sort of like tide change uh, realistically here? I know what we want. We want to see Venezuela become the Paris of South America again. But realistically, like what, what will we see in five or 10 years? That is a good point of what you said. What we want is, of course, Maduro to leave. Uh, and you know a uh, uh, regime change. You know that's that's what we all want. But uh, what I'm worried about, and it's what if that doesn't happen? Because if that hasn't happened on the last 22 years, uh, what give us any claims that that will happen anytime soon? Are we gonna wait for our politicians to solve them? Uh, are we gonna you know just ask for a foreign country to solve our problems or for a military invasion and that will be actually that military invasion wait and, and uh, happens and, and we're just gonna wait for uh, for that or, or do we even want uh, uh, want that to uh, to be that way? So uh, I I I think that many many people is starting to realize that. We need to find the solutions ourselves, and by ourselves, I mean as a society and as entrepreneurs, and uh, uh, finding creative ways to solve the, the problems. And uh, I think that the doors are there uh, because of the whole political pressure that right now Maduro has. Um, probably not for a regime change, but um, this will allow you know to many people to create and launch new ideas and new tools and new solutions. So I think that the next 10 years are going to be marked by the creativity of Venezuelans um, building solutions uh, for for the country. Because, yeah, it could be said that the Petro failed, you know, but it, it was a try to do things differently and, and, to, and to try to find another way and to, to fight the regime with with ideas and, and, and technology. And, and even through the petrol fail, it bring a reality to the whole country that was a crypto economy that became legal. Yeah, that was the uh, most important uh, thing too, I think, too. You're right. They, it, it, everyone uh, became aware of it. Everyone became aware of that. And when the state is doing it, that means 
in a dictatorial regime that you can do it too. And so you yeah. started to saw, you know, billboards on the highways of new entrepreneurs and new companies uh, making different crypto projects in Venezuela. That, that wasn't happening before because it was very much like, hey, I work in crypto. It's like, hey, I work with cocaine, something like that. You know, you will be sentenced to into prison uh, right away. That was the, 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 the fear before. So I think that the next 10 years are going to be marked by that. The political uh, situation is, is very fragile for Maduro, but at the same time, the corruption scheme um, with the military and the incentive for the military to remain loyal to Maduro is going to be very hard to to actually break that type of relationship. And at the same time, the position right now is that it worse than it has been on the past 15 years, all scattered uh, with different uh, leaders aiming different solutions. I mean, the opposition, uh, the political opposition in, in Venezuela is is more right now about destroying one another than actually facing the government as we were back uh, in 2015. And that is very saddening, but that is actually warning too. And that gives us an alarm to anybody. This is not probably going to change anytime soon. And we should actually be prepared for, uh, for uh, an alternative, for a solution. And I don't think that alternative for everyone is just migrating uh, of, the, uh, of the country. There is many yeah, people- Yeah, and in the spirit of crypto, in the spirit of the economy, in the spirit of what, what you've been doing, um, the best way to change is to empower people um, through economy, through technology, through crypto, through Bitcoin, and for continuing doing- I guess like having good intentions and for for trying to do the right thing. Gabriel Jimenez, thank you for taking the time um, on the show today. Everyone will read your story. I can't wait to watch the movie. Um, it's an it's an epic saga. The most interesting thing, it seemed that throughout the whole story, uh, your intentions were always good. Um, unfortunately, good intentions sometimes are not transferable. And while you may have good intentions and I may have good intentions, our nativity uh, other people can take that for granted, and it sucks. But I think the lessons learned and the history that will show. So again, yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming today again. Thank you very much. And I invite everyone just to keep dreaming. And that yeah. if there is as even a slim possibility to change our country or change our world, try it. Amen. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.